When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see the real you or what you have been conditioned to believe is you? The two are so, so different. One is an infinite consciousness capable of being and creating whatever it chooses. The other is an illusion imprisoned by its own perceived and programmed limitations that undercut our natural ability to embrace the void. anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 247 of Embrace the Void, where we put the cue in just asking questions. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking philosophy of conspiracy theories. So, let's bake some crumbs. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is M.R.X. Dentith, a philosophy professor at BNUZH's Center for International Philosophy, with a focus on conspiracy theories, secrets, and fake news. They are also the co-host of the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, and they have a recent paper out in Synthes, we think, we're not quite sure on the name, uh, open access called Suspicious Conspiracy Theories. M, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting. The impetus for this conversation was there was a thread somewhere on Twitter at some point about conspiracy theories. I'm involved in many of them. And you jumped in with some critiques of approaches and pointed me towards some philosophy of conspiracism that I didn't know existed. And since then, we've been chatting a bunch about these issues. And I wanted to have you on to talk about sort of your perspective and the critiques that you all have, that you and others have raised that I think are really valuable in this space. So to get us started, do you want to tell folks a little bit about sort of your background and what gets you interested in the philosophy of conspiracy theories? Certainly. So back in the day when I was first inducted into the Bavarian Illuminati, oh, I'm sorry, uh, mm. back in the day when I was growing up in a, a small coastal village of Auckland, New Zealand called Devonport, there was a, cons- a local conspiracy theory, which was concerning a suspected hidden military installation in a place called North Head, which is a promontory point in Devonport, where there is an established military base. It was, it was designed during the Prussian scare in the late 19th century and then redeveloped mm-hmm. during World Wars I and Two to defend Auckland from potential invasion by the Hun. And there's always been this conspiracy theory that beneath the head is a whole bunch of tunnels 
that no one's ever been told about, which holds a gigantic military base, and also may hold the remnants of two Boeing seaplanes, the prototype planes the Boeing and Vestavald Corporation made, Mallard and Mm. Bluebell. And in the 1980s, this turned out to be really big news in Devonport, because Devonport at that stage was the most luxurious and expensive suburb to live in. And there were rumors going around that within this hidden military base was a large amount of discarded ammunition that had the potentiality of just exploding. And what you (laughs) find is rich landowners do not want the suburb around them going up in an explosion. So there was a parliamentary inquiry, two archaeological investigations into the supposed evidence for the tunnel complex. And as someone living in Devonport at the time, I became really interested in the she said, he said debate about this. So my father was adamant there were no tunnels under North Head. His best friend he grew up with in Devonport at the time was adamant the two of them had been in those tunnels when they were children. (laughs) And so I I kind of grew up with an interest in a very particular conspiracy theory. So when I was at university and I was searching around for a PhD topic to do, I thought it would be really interesting to do a PhD in the philosophy of archaeology, looking into the archaeological evidence for and against the tunnel complex on North Head. And then Mm -hmm. with time, the archaeology kind of just dropped away, and it became a project in epistemology, looking at these conspiracy theories about North Head. Eventually, the example of North Head also dropped away from my PhD, and it became an investigation into A, Is our suspicion of conspiracy theories warranted, given B, we know that conspiracies do occur, and C, they Mm -hmm. probably occur more often than people think. And Mm -hmm. so I started this project back in the early 2000s, and so well before it became a kind of, to use that terrible term, a sexy topic to look Mm. into conspiracy theories. Went mainstream again. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I was to, I was looking in into conspiracy theories when they weren't cool, and suddenly, right. So you're you're a hipster cool of conspiracy theories. Now, no, we all we yes. both know we all we both know that um, from listening to things like decoding the gurus that that claiming to be a hipster about something is a classic sign of being a conspiracy theorist. All conspiracy theorists will tell you that they were into the conspiracy before it was revealed, or something like that kind of stuff. So. We'll just we'll just add that on the on the note card and, and move along here. But, but uh, I mean, I, I'd yeah. say I've got, I've got a warranted conspiracy theory there because I uh-huh. really was, and so yeah. Mm-hmm. So I my my interest in in conspiracy th- theories kind of came out from initially wanting to explain my skepticism of the North mm-hmm. Head conspiracy theories, and then going well, I still don't think there's any there's any warrant to the claim there are hidden tunnels under North Head. But I also now understand why we should treat conspiracy theories more seriously, because there are bigger societal issues that we need to get to the root of, which is Mm -hmm. we don't really have much confidence that we live in a society where conspiracies aren't occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like this sort of as a pushback. So the the book that you pointed me towards that I, I really enjoyed is this edited volume that you did with several other philosophers called Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, um, where, you know, you lay out what I guess we could call a kind of particularist critique of 
sort of the the previous and maybe still current status quo when it comes to how people generally talk about um, conspiracy theories. So do you want to like sort of push that argument a little bit? Um, you sort of you're, you're, you've broached it here, but do you want to like make clear to folks, first of all, what, what do you see as the the state of play when you are coming into this material? What is the material that you're sort of particularly frustrated by? And then like, what is the corrective that you're trying to bring here? That users particularly frustra frustrated by their given, I advocate for a particular position. So yeah, the the, <laughs> the landscape around talk of conspiracy theories hasn't really changed much in the last de de decade or so. There is a kind of dominant view, which philosophers of conspiracy theory tend to call generalism. And generalism is the thesis that we have prima facie grounds for thinking that belief in conspiracy theories is bad. So they're either the result of some kind of psychological pathology, they're the result of epistemic deficiencies on the part of the people advocating the conspiracy theories and the like. And so the project in the generalist camp is trying to explain why do we have a righteous suspicion of these things called conspiracy theories? Now, philosophers, and I'm, I'm, I'm being a generalist here about philosophers talking about conspiracy theories. There is, of course, uh -huh. a wide variety of views by philosophers on conspiracy theories. But there is kind of also a consensus by most of the scholars in philosophy writing on the topic that actually generalism is not the right approach to take towards these things called conspiracy theories. Rather, and we're kind of harking back to the work of Charles Pigton, who in of conspiracy, uh, so Popper revisited, or what is wrong with conspiracy theories in 1995, and Brian L. Keeley of conspiracy theories in 1999, both argue that look, there isn't a prima facie case for saying conspiracy theories are mad, bad, or dangerous. Instead, what we have are examples of unwarranted conspiracy theories and examples of warranted conspiracy theories and attempts to demarcate between those which are warranted, which we ought to believe, and those which are unwarranted, the ones that we have a rightful suspicion of. And as Brian L. Keeley points out, there's no mark of the incredible between the warranted mm -hmm. and unwarranted ones unless we're willing to do the research and actually explain why some conspiracy theories are warranted and why some conspiracy theories are unwarranted. What we don't want to do is dismiss conspiracy theories as a class because someone in the world has labeled a theory as being a conspiracy theory. Because we know from history that conspirators, to try to escape being caught out for engaging in their conspiracy theories, sorry, in their conspiracies, have labelled those conspiracies, oh, is, is this just one of those conspiracy theories? They've kind of operationalised mm -hmm. the pejorative and gone, well, look, we know the term is used as a slur. It's a very effective way to shut down investigations. And there are multiple examples throughout history, from the Moscow show trials in the 1930s to Watergate to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, where conspiratorial mm -hmm. activity has been labeled as a conspiracy theory in order for the conspirators to try to get away with their conspiracies. So particulars mm -hmm. are kind of interested in that issue of trying to diagnose, well, actually, when should we be pursuing these claims of conspiracy to uncover the actual conspiracies that go on? Yeah, and it's 
it's baffling to me, to be honest, that like, well, not that baffling because I know philosophers, but like that this topic could not evolve in the past 10 years is absurd given the like explosion of conspiratorial material. We, we can even debate if there's been an explosion. I know that could be itself a moral panic potentially, but like it seems to me that it has become mainstream in, in many in many ways, that it is dominating um, political parties to, to a degree that it was not before, that things like the Great Replacement conspiracy theory are like on the table and like open topics for people to be for in a way that like I don't think was allowed earlier. Um, so like those changes, it seems to me, should be like influencing all of our thinking about this. And I think a lot of us should feel unsettled about how to think about it. And I, you know, when I write about conspiracy theories, I always, almost always, you know, at some point caveat that like this stuff is harder to talk about in a world where we have detailed evidence of particularly harmful conspiracy theories, some of which by organizations that we are now being asked to trust, like Pfizer or something. Um, so I, I do think that is a, a really, you know, serious problem and that we do need to be careful. So let's, you know, let's set aside bad. You said mad, bad, and dangerous. There, right? Let's set aside yeah. bad and dangerous. And I, I, for a out, I, I was doing scare quotes, ar ar right, around that. So, yeah, which is right, right, one of those things which doesn't really work on an audio medium, <laughs> right? But I think it's a valuable point because it's like the three concerns about conspiracy theories are they are indicative of pathology, they are immoral in some way or they are dangerous in some way right um and i want to we'll put aside the immoral and dangerous for a second because i think it could actually be the case that even justified conspiracy theories are dangerous uh let's just talk about mad for a second because this i think is is really important so you know there has been i think a tradition of portraying conspiracy theorists as being psychologically distinct from other people do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the current understanding of what, um, is there anything that distinguishes someone who is a conspiracy theorist from someone who is not psychologically speaking? So there are kind of two ways to approach this. So there's the Charles Pigton argument. So Charles Pigton in his article, I think it's Complots of Mischief, he kind of puts forward the following argument. If you are historically or politically literate, you know conspiracies occur. Ipso facto, you are a conspiracy theorist. You're, you are mm -hmm, aware that mm -hmm. conspiracies occur. You've theorized about it. And this is using a definition of conspiracy theory, which is fairly broad in general. Any belief in a conspiracy will turn out to be a conspiracy theory under the kind of definition that particularists use. He also points mm -hmm. out that if you deny that conspiracies occur, which is to say you go against what history and politics tells us, then you're also a conspiracy theorist because you're saying, look, the standard histories and what we read about in the newspapers is false. So it's obviously the construction of a conspiracy to make us believe bad or wrong things. So you're a conspiracy theorist as well. So from mm -hmm. that particular perspective, everyone turns out to be a conspiracy theorist and the task is working out, right, so when is it right to be a conspiracy theorist about an event? And when is it wrong to be a conspiracy theorist about an event? Now, mm -hmm. that requires you to buy into a particular definition of conspiracy theory, this kind of minimal and broad definition. This is a conspiracy theory, simply any explanation of an event that cites a conspiracy as a salient cause. 
lots of academics disagree with that particular definition. So they right. will build in that, you know, conspiracy theories are prima facie false, so they are irrational beliefs. Or they'll build in that the likelihood of a conspiracy theory being true is so low that we've got a kind of justified position that says we should be suspicious of these beliefs. And so in that particular respect, you end up going, well, look, if we're going to say that belief in conspiracy theories is bad, then it's either going to be bad because of some kind of psychological predisposition towards belief mm-hmm. in conspiracy theories, which is the work that a lot of social psychologists do. So they're investigating, mm-hmm. you know, what are the the precursors or the assumptions that people have that lead them towards these beliefs? And can we, you know, explain that with respect to a loss of trust? Uh, the fact that people trust the wrong people, that people just have a predisposition to find patterns in the world where they don't exist. Or you'll argue that there's some kind of epistemic deficiency on the part of conspiracy theorists, that they they make common errors of reasoning, not due to some kind of psychological fault. Maybe it's the way they've been educated. Maybe it's the way that they treat particular types of evidence. And so you end up going down the route of trying to explain things with respect to epistemic deficiency. And of course, mm-hmm. the particularist goes, well, well, look, if we buy the Pigton argument, then it's not going to be epistemic deficiency, which explains why people believe conspiracy theories. It might still be possible that there's a psychological predisposition to see, to see conspiracies where they don't exist, but it's not an error of reasoning. It might just be a kind of mm-hmm. pattern-seeking beha- behavior or activity that goes on mentally. But particulars will often also deny the psychological argument as well by going, part of the problem of the way we talk about conspiracy theorists is the kind of contrast class, the examples we use. So this is an argument I put forward in an article called Debunking Conspiracy Theories, which is the argument that goes, look, we tend to use as exemplars of conspiracy theorists people like Alex Jones and David Icke, because they are Mm -hmm. notable conspiracy theorists. But the problem is they're notable in part because of how exceptional they are. There aren't that many Alex Joneses and David Ikes out there. I should put brackets around that. I hope there aren't that many David Ikes and Alex Joneses <laughs> ten, out there. Ten years ago, maybe. <laughs> it's a growth so, industry. Yeah, precisely. So they are they are notable examples, and we shouldn't be using them as exemplars of the form or character of the conspiracy theorist. We should actually be looking, if we're going to do a kind of empirical investigation, we should look at how do normal people I'm saying not normal here with respect to not being Alex Jones, not being right. David Icke. How are they talking about their conspiracy theories? Because it turns out if you actually start talking with conspiracy theorists, the scary thing is if you think that conspiracy theories are in some sense prima facie false, conspiracy theorists are a lot like the rest of us. They're an awful lot like the rest of us. Which of course leads back into Charles Pigton's argument that is, well, that's because we're all conspiracy theorists of some stripe. Yeah. So I, okay. A lot to unpack there for sure. Um, I do think in general, you're right that there has been a kind of 
psych- uh, moralizing and psychologizing around this issue using extreme cases like Alex Jones. And, you know, there's a long tradition. It's a weird tradition when I, when you think about the media of conspiracism because they are often portrayed as like crackpots, but they're also for dramatic effect often portrayed as correct right like so you have x-files you have you know enemy of the state these stories are stories of unhinged conspiracy theorists also being correct which is not in my opinion not necessarily the best message on several fronts to be sending well actually i mean the the best example of that is the mel gibson Mm -hmm. film conspiracy theory Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. he's accidentally correct it's kind of epistemic luck that he's right. right and yet somehow that vindicates the entire film it's also a film mm-hmm. with Mel Gibson, which is problematic for a whole different reason. Speaking, yeah, well, we'll get to the anti-Semitic conspiracies, don't worry. Um, but yes, um, Mel Gettier in that movie. Um, so so then you have this point about, like, we don't want to focus in too much on the extremes. And I would say we want to do both, right? We want to understand Alex Jones. Like, we want to understand the most malignant version of this. But we also, as you say, need to spend more time understanding the more everyday mundane versions of this and i think what's what i really like about your critique is that what you're frustrated about partly is your opponents use the definition itself to smuggle in the evaluative judgment around conspiracy theories rather than arguing for it right you need to argue you need to make the case for like why is this thing bad so to like get us like a good baseline here do you want to give your definition of conspiracy theories and like what might be what might seem initially counterintuitive on that definition that you think is an acceptable bullet to bite so my definition of a conspiracy theory is any explanation of an event which cites a conspiracy as a salient cause and of course what ends up being the crux of this definition is a definition of conspiracy itself so a conspiracy is made up of two or more people the conspirators condition although as a as a phd examiner pointed out defining a conspiracy with respect to a to a set of conspirators is a little bit circular but also turns out <laughs> other terms to use like plotter kind of build that in as well it's hard to work out a way to talk about conspirators without implying conspiracy right and uh-huh. they're working in secret and as I've argued in numerous places, you just have to attempt to work in, in secret to be engaging in a conspiracy. So you don't need to be successful at your secrecy. You simply need to intend to act secretly, in part because conspiracies mm. get revealed all the time. So you need to you know, look, the intention is we're trying to act in secret. We might be really bad conspirators. We may be really, really bad. In fact, criminal charges of conspiracy are often based upon, yes, yeah, so they went down the pub and they had a few pints and suddenly they revealed everything in front of the bar and they weren't aware they'd given the game away. And right. of course, you have to be acting towards some end. So there needs to be a goal in mind. And once again, you don't need to achieve that goal. You simply need to be mm-hmm. acting towards it, in part because many conspirators get caught out because of their lack of secrecy before they're able to attempt in anything. But we still think mm-hmm. they're engaging in a conspiracy at that point. Mm-hmm. And very broad definition then. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, very broad. And that means I would define the organization of a surprise party as being an example of a conspiracy. And if you were then suspicious 
of your friend's activity and thought that they were engaging in organizing a surprise party for you, you would be engaging in conspiracy theorizing at this point. Now, mm-hmm. that means I think conspiratorial activity is incredibly common because if the organization of surprise parties counts as a conspiracy, then there are an awful lot of conspiracies going on right now. And it also means that I think that people are probably conspiracy theorizing an awful lot. And a lot of that is going to be warranted conspiracy theorizing. People have suspicions about what their friends or loved ones are up to. And in some cases, they're right. In some cases, they're wrong. But it is going to be a a rump of warranted conspiracy theorizing going on Mm. out there. Now, many people, including some of my critics, think that this is too broad a definition, that we need to kind of add in that a conspiracy theory is contra to some kind of official story or theory in the world. Or we need to build into the definition that conspiracies are necessarily sinister or if not sinister, suspicious states of affairs. And I can kind of see why you'd want to build in suspiciousness, because most of the time we think then when people are conspiring, they're doing something suspicious, but it's not necessarily against the common good. It's simply, if it's not suspicious, why are you keeping it secret? Yeah, that seems that seems implied in the secrecy part to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, I suppose you you could imagine you could imagine a world in which everybody acts secretive, secretively all the time, and thus no one ever treats acting secretively as suspicious because it's just what sure. everyone does. But we don't we don't live in that world, and hopefully, we also never will live in that world because that world just sounds a bit weird. But yeah, so like, some a, people, like a fascist police state is exactly that world, and in that world, well, and actually, and as soon yeah. as you said t- t- they went, I worked in Romania for almost two years, <laughs> and when you start reading about the role of the Securitate during the communist regime, they were right. living in a world where they suspected everyone, including their loved ones, of being involved in conspiracies, if not against them against other mm-hmm. loved ones or friends in their community, because that's how the Securitate worked. So yeah, yeah my some understanding people... is it doesn't make you less suspicious. It makes every action look suspicious or feel suspicious in that kind of environment, right? Like... Yeah, including doing perfectly ordinary things and going, well, someone could misinterpret this. You know, I, I have to go down to the grocery store because I'm missing one piece of vegetation for my dinner, but it's going to look really weird if I rock up to the grocery store and I just buy one aubergine and then leave. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might go, are they trying to signal someone with that? I mean, surely they'd buy more than just one aubergine. So yeah, even perfectly ordinary <laughs> right. acts suddenly look suspicious when you're worried that people are watching everything you do. Yeah, so... I don't have the concern that your critics have about this being too broad a definition. I like this as a as a sort of neutral definition, and I don't find it weird or counterintuitive at all to say that like organizing a party is a conspiracy <laughs> and that like me being suspicious of my partner on my birthday is conspiratorial thinking. That seems true to me and it seems like valuable to include that in our understanding of these sort of mindsets. Um, and behaviors. Now, if I can play reviewer two here just for a second, um, as you were as you were laying out your your criteria there, I was pondering the one secrecy because I've been watching the January six um, uh, 
conference, you know, the, the talks about the January 6th insurrection that are currently going on where Liz Cheney is trying to murder Donald Trump and several other people on television, which is fun. Um, you know, there was a critique, there was a concern, and I think it's still a live concern that folks have raised that like Donald Trump commits crimes openly and talks about doing it in a way that undercuts our ability to think it's a crime, essentially, because we have this assumption that crimes and conspiracies are done in secret, right? When Trump's out here in the street being like, I'm going to, you know, accuse everyone of fraud and explain that this is like wrong. And then we're going to like, you know, we're going to do all of these things. And he's just like laying it out there. Um, do you think that there could be a, like a a kind of weird conspiracy that is done completely out in the open in that kind of way, but still qualifies as a conspiracy. So this is the topic of open secrecy, which actually Marty Orr and myself talked about in the article Secrecy and Conspiracy, which is the idea mm -hmm. that certain things that we treat as secret, despite the fact that everybody knows they're going on. Uh, the classic example mm -hmm. in the literature is police corruption in the 60s and 70s. Everybody in the West was, to some extent, aware that the police fitted up suspects for crimes all the time. And mm -hmm. we allowed the police to do it, and we acted as if we didn't know they were doing it. So if it ever came out, people would be aghast. And yet it kept on coming out, and people didn't seem to act as if they knew it was going on. So it seemed to be some kind of open secret in society. Mm -hmm, the police mm -hmm. engage in corrupt behavior. We allow it because they're putting criminals away. We will act aghast when they caught out doing it for the wrong reasons, but we'll just let them go back to engaging in their, in their corrupt behavior. And so the modern example where you've got the kind of what seems to be very open corrupt activity by prominent mm -hmm. members of the Republican Party, particularly around, I, I was actually about to say the the committee to re-elect the president, but that that's Nixon, who's of course another mm -hmm. example of, sure. of, of the form. Seems to be a case where, yeah, why, why hide what you're doing when you can do this openly? But of course, the whole thing about the investigation into what went on on January 6th is that many Republicans are acting as if they're completely and utterly unaware until today that this right. kind of thing was going on. And so mm -hmm. there is a sense in which you can keep something secret as long as the rest of your friends or your peer group also agree to pretend it's secret as well. It's like an Emperor's New Clothes style conspiracy or something like that. Yeah. As long as we all yeah. agree not to call out the fact that there's no clothes there, right? We're all in on it. But yeah. Um, and I'm also sort of pondering, if, like, is an open conspiracy just government? Are we just talking about government now? <laughs> um, but okay. So I'm not concerned about the too broad definition. I actually, my concerns, and, and we can move to this now because I think we're sort of moving to the second half here, um, is is more like the implications like if your view is correct and I, I don't have like particularly strong objections to the steps of the argument so i want to talk about like what are the implications for us going forward right and my major concerns are in the neighborhood of you know like do your own research do your own research is a has become sort of a, a cliche jokey kind of like 
you know, this is what happens when you start down the conspiracism spiral is you think I can do my own research and I go and I do the research and I end up in the conspiracy theory world. Right. Um, your view, your particularism, I think someone could be concerned, essentially demands that individuals do that and put themselves, in my opinion, at risk of sliding into those spirals because they're not able to debunk the conspiracy. Because it's very hard to debunk conspiracy theories. They're very often sort of well-constructed to resist um, debunking. So how do you see your approach dealing with the problem of this kind of do-your-own-research trap? So I agree. It's a big worry, the whole do-your-own-research material. And I think part of the issue is we typically treat epistemic activity as being a solo or individualistic affair. Uh, So there actually Mm -hmm. are some epistemologists who kind of go, look, the Enlightenment has a lot to answer for, but one of the things it really has to answer for is the idea that we can remove religious authority and replace it with individuals using pure will or rationality to think through issues and come to the right answers. And of course we can't. So I'm a social mm-hmm. epistemologist. I'm interested in how knowledge works in a social form. So how do we learn from others? How does what we do affect how others think about us? You know, how does knowledge transmit in a social world? And certainly doing your own research isn't a very good social activity. It tends to isolate you from your social community and the other knowers. So I think if we're going to treat conspiracy theory seriously, we need to be treating conspiracy theory seriously as a society. So one example that I've talked about in the past is the idea that we should be setting up communities of inquiry in the kind of Jewian fashion of creating communities of like-minded individuals who are interested in a particular topic, which allows you to distribute the epistemic load and investigate complex claims not by yourself, but by other members of your community, because you're driven mm-hmm. by the, the want to uncover. Is there a conspiracy going on here? We prob- If there is, we probably want to put a stop to it. And if there isn't, what we want is a really good account we can share with other people to go, yeah, look, this particular conspiracy theory might seem plausible at first glance, but it turns out alien shape-shifting reptiles don't actually exist. Mm-hmm. And not only that. So, no, I agree with the concern. If we're focusing on what individuals do, then I think doing your own research can lead you down a rabbit hole. I think if we're going to treat conspiracy theory seriously, as I argue for, we need to be doing this as a society. And when we're doing it mm-hmm. as a society, there are there are rights and also duties associated with those kind of investigations. Okay, so I, I agree with you in the sense that I'm also a social epistemologist. I also think that like the only way that... I, you know, anyone gets lucky enough to not spiral is because they have people around them who help them not spiral, who provide them valuable, corrective information. When I'm doing this work, though, always in the back of my head, there's a little demon holding up a mirror being like, you're just the same as the people that you're critiquing, though. Like, it's always so like to play QAnon's advocate here for a second. Right. 
a QAnoner is going to say, I'm not doing my work in isolation. I'm part of a rich community of bakers who are, you know, bringing together this information and we're helping each other. And like, what's the actual difference between my epistemic community and your epistemic community? Other than that, we've come to different conclusions, which on your view can't be proof alone that like my community is wrong and your community is right. So how do you, how would you push back and, and sort of help people? How, how would you push back to that response? Yeah. Well, in part, I would also correct something I said. So I said like-minded individuals. It's mm. actually not the right approach to take here. So if if you were concerned about the existence of conspiracies or you're concerned about unwarranted conspiracy theories spreading in a community and you want to produce some kind of report about why we should believe this theory or why we shouldn't believe this theory... If your report is produced only by like-minded individuals, so only members of the QAnon community, or only people who think that there's absolutely no basis to any kind of 9-11 conspiracy theory, then you're probably not going to get much traction by members mm -hmm. of the opposing side, assuming that there's a, bi a binary here. What mm -hmm. you need is to, and this is, I think, the benefit of a, commun a community of inquiry approach, especially one which was kind of institutionalized as kind of standing committees in a society, and that you need to bring in people from all walks of life, whether they be people who seem to have a psychological predisposition predisposition towards conspiracy theories, or conversely, people who may have some kind of psychological predisposition to not see conspiracies where they might be occurring and get a diverse group of people working together to work through these things. So the idea mm -hmm. is what you don't want is simply extensions of the self in a kind of self-interested way. So people like me investigating conspiracy theories. You actually do want to bring in people who might be a little bit like David Icke and a little bit, by, a little bit like, like, like Alex Jones. Mm -hmm. Work together produce reports. And in the old days, I used to say we could model this on the way the Supreme Court works with the majority decision <laughs> and the minority decision. I'm aware now that the construction of the Supreme Court now kind yeah, of you should indicates... Pick a different, you pick a different yeah, metaphor. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be majority decisions all the way down now. But in mm -hmm. an ideal situation where you had a diverse Supreme Court, you had majority decisions that said, look, this is why the majority of us think this is the right stance to take. And you'd get the mm -hmm. minority report saying, look, we disagree with the majority decision, and here's why. And what you'd have from your community of inquiry would be something of a similar nature. You'd need to write a report explaining, look, we looked at the evidence, we processed through all this particular data, this is what we believe, but there is a minority report here that gives the counter view. And then, in theory... If your community of inquiry is doing its job properly, the public then has access to that information, and that's going to inform the further public debate. So mm -hmm. that's ideally how I'd like to avoid the issue of just mm -hmm. the QAnon people investigating things or just the 9-11 skeptics pursuing things. And as a philosopher, of course, I can just appeal to this is the ideal way to do it. Actually putting it into practice, of course, is going to end up being a lot harder. Sure. Though you do see like skeptic groups, for example, reaching out to psychics to try to collaborate on research to, you know, test these theories. So I do think there are sort of versions of this 
out there in the world. Now, so you're an epistemologist. So when am I sufficiently justified in believing that a conspiracy theory is false? So you're talking about these like debunking reports, you know, there's a minority report with, you know, in your version or something. Um, what do I need for me as an individual to say, I, I can confidently say that like 9-11 was not an inside job? I mean, that's a, that's a great a great question. So one way to think about it would be to go, well, look, if we're going to say conspiracy theory is warranted or unwarranted, we want to say, look, does the conspiracy theory end up being a good explanation for, for an event, at which point we should probably consider it? Or should we say, actually, compared to the other explanations of the event, it's actually not particularly good. There are better explanations out, out there. And this is what I argued back in 2016 with when inferring to a conspiracy theory might be the best explanation. I kind of do a loose Bayesian analysis of mm. when we might infer whether a conspiracy theory is warranted by talking about, you know, the prior probability, what kind of society do we live in? I lived in Romania, as I said, for almost two years. Long history of conspiracy. Romanians are much more likely to suspect conspiracies in their society because conspiracies happen in their society more so than they do in my homeland of Aotearoa, New, Ze New Zealand, which according to the recent transparent, uh, Transparency International report, is the most transparent government in the world. That doesn't mean conspiracies don't occur, but it does yeah. mean that New Zealanders don't think conspiracies happen particularly often back home. Speaking of tunnels, though, I've been doing some interesting research on New Zealand doomsday prepper billionaires um, building secret tunnels to hide well, the, during most the Most of those are so. American doomsday Right, America, American doomsday. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, just, so it's just funny that they're going and, and like you know, hiding in the hills, like literally the a version of the tunnel conspiracy theory that you were describing earlier. It's because we yeah. made it really, really easy for millionaires and billionaires to buy land from overseas. And then uh -huh, there's the whole uh -huh. Peter Thiel thing, which is another kettle of yes. worms. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, okay, but yeah, so you're, you're saying, you know, we have to be kind of particularist and thinking about the context when we are assessing our, you know, the plausibility of these conspiracies. That, was there other things you wanted to add there? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you, look, you look at the prior probability of conspiracy in your society. You look at the kind of posterior probability, you know, does the evidence we've got actually suggest that something untoward is going on? And then you look at the relative probability, which is the question of, well, look, there's a lot of different explanations for the same event. So given mm -hmm. the prior probability and the posterior probability, is this actually the most relevant explanation? Or are there better explanations that appeal to these other prob probabilities as well? And that might mm -hmm. give you an idea of when you ought to believe a conspiracy theory. Or when you might go, well, actually, this conspiracy theory actually isn't particularly good on this kind of calculus. But, I mean, there are mm -hmm. other things we can, we can look at. I mean, as Brian L. Keeley has argued, there are certain conspiracy theories which just persist in public discourse, despite the fact that no positive evidence ever accrues for them. And so he calls these mature conspiracy theories. They're kind of mature in the same way that a cheese, as it matures, kind of gets a stench. <laughs> And the stench, right. the stench will make you cautious. Yeah. The stench will make you cautious about the cheese. The cheese could still be delicious. 
This is a weird analogy mm-hmm. for me to use because I'm vegan and thus know nothing about cheese. Okay. But I but, love stinky cheese, so I'm right here with yeah, you. Go on, yeah. go on. And, and so, you know, if, you, if, if a cheese smells, you probably want right. to go, I probably should do some research as to whether I should eat it or not. Because if it's, <laughs> it's bad, bad it's really <laughs> bad. But also it might mm. be Rockford, at which point it's going to be really, really delicious. So maturity right. is an indication of suspiciousness, but it doesn't actually tell you it's unwarranted. It simply tells you to be cautious. Yeah, and so got- I want to jump in there. Yeah. Because, yeah, you recently have this paper out, um, and I wanted to mention it because it's out in open access um, as well, and it's called Suspicious Conspiracies. And so suspicious like, you lie out the criteria. Excuse me, conspiracy yeah. theories. That was not part of a conspiracy to to hide your work. Um, that's what they want you to think. That's what they want. That's what it's always layers. We'll get to, we'll get to the day in a second. That's that's the cha- the problem here. Um, but like, so there are you feel like some features that should make us more prima facie, you know, at the outset suspicious of a conspiracy. Um, maybe not just that it's a conspiracy theory, but that like it has certain smelliness to it right do you want to are there other kinds of like smelliness that you would add to to the list there besides the like um no date no evidence has accrued to it but it is stuck around well i mean so charles pigton has argued that some conspiracy theories suffer from the problem of defectability which is the it's a conspiracy where you would expect someone to have been a whistleblower at some point and the fact that they haven't blown the whistle is kind of an indication that maybe there's not much to the claim of conspiracy which kind of is linked to maturity there the longer a defectable conspiracy remains undefected from the more suspicious we should we should be about it and that requires making some assumptions about the number of people involved so when you start talking Mm -hmm. about 9-11 conspiracy theories most people go well to actually successfully undertake 9-11 as an inside job requires a very large cast of people. None of those people have outed themselves as being involved in the conspiracy. And as Charles likes to point out, there, there are going to be incentives to be the first person to reveal the conspiracy. Being the first mm-hmm. person to blow the whistle is going to give you a benefit that the second person will never get. You'll get the clemency. You'll get the interviews on TV. You'll get the shorter time in prison. You'll get the book deals and things. So there is, as time goes by, a kind of incentive to blow the whistle, whether it be financial or simply a troubled conscience going, yeah, I I was responsible for a war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Should we do something Mm -hmm. about that? (laughs) Uh, Lee Basham and Yuhal Riker have talked about, you know, some conspiracy theories feature fantastical elements that go beyond our understanding of the world as we know it. David Icke thinks that alien shape-shifting reptiles exist. Most of us don't think that that is part of our fundamental ontologies of the way the world is. And so we can be suspicious of those theories because they they make claims that are just not supported by our other views of the world. And I think the mm-hmm. thing which we're kind of heading towards here is something which I've talked about, which are recurrent conspiratorial narratives. The same old story coming up mm-hmm. again and again and again. And I think that gets us into anti-Semitism. 
Yes, and I do want to talk about anti-Semitism. We will absolutely get there. And I do think that reoccurring narratives problem is the most plausible to me version of the concern about conspiracism or conspiratorial thinking. It's not, you know, paranoia or schizophrenia or, you know, like those things. It's just sometimes reasonably someone gets into a pattern of thinking where they explain problems via conspiratorial theories and that just becomes the kind of the tool that they grab most readily right um now so my concern with all of these features right which i see as a kind of a stopgap to try to prevent us from sliding into our own conspiracism here um, is that they all seem susceptible to what I call the problem of they, and this is me air quoting on podcasts, but like they being the they, the big they, right? Whoever's doing the thing. Um, and in my experience, you know, conspiracy theorists will respond to any of the things you just described there from, from alien problem, you know, aliens not being real to like defectability by saying, well, look, you're just not taking seriously how powerful they are, right? And if you take seriously enough how powerful they are, none of these features work because, you know, what is the benefit of, um, you know, getting to do a few interviews if you're then murdered by the Clintons, right? What is the the you know what reason do we have not to believe in aliens when area 51's right there and like they have been you know using you know in, implementing alien technology on us for decades or something like that right so there's always that pushback where it's like whatever evidence you bring forward is just the evidence they wanted you to bring forward and so we're always in this kind of like like it feels like it short circuits the kind of bayesian mindset a little bit right how do you how do you think about and how would you push back or deal with the problem of they like that? So I would say that that is a problem with some conspiracy theorists. So mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not convinced this is true of every conspiracy theorist. I think there is probably a live debate to be had here as to how common a move this is. Steve Clark, who wrote a paper, Conspiracy Theories and Controlled Demolition, no, sorry, Conspiracy Theories and the Internet Controlled Demolition, uh, talked about the notion that conspiracy theories, at least on the face of it, seem to have changed from before the internet to post the internet. Mm -hmm. As he points out, in the old days, if you had a conspiracy theory which you were trying to promote, you had to write a letter to the editor, or you'd write a magazine article, or you'd write a book. The feedback mechanisms for claims of that type were lengthy and laborious. So if I write a letter to the editor, then you have to wait for someone to reply to my letter in print. And so you might have correspondence that takes place over, over months. You write a magazine article, you might wait a month or two to see responses to it in said periodical. You write a book, you have to wait for people to write to you to say, you know, dear Aaron, best book I've ever read, or dear, dear Aaron, I know what you're really doing. You're just covering up for insert group X. Sure. And as he points out, in those situations, those classical conspiracy theories pre the internet were actually fairly specific. They would, they would name who in the trilateral commission were behind this particular activity. Or they'd talk about how, you know, H.W. Bush's father was involved in a particular set of financial... What's the word I'm looking for? In financial... Oh, now I've just completely dealings, lost a word. Double dealings. Yeah, um, financial shenanigans. 
a whole bunch of financial shenanigans linking back to the Nazi party, etc., etc. As he points Mm -hmm. out, in the era of the internet, all of this transferred into what we used to call blogs. I don't. Does does Mm -hmm. anyone have blogs now? They do. There are still some blogs out there for sure. Yeah, they're having a bit of a resurgence too. I mean, maybe maybe not, but it seems to me that like some folks are like trending black back towards the like long form blogger after getting burned out on like Twitter and stuff, maybe. And I suppose technically Substack has become the new era of sure. Blog. That's a that conspiracy also... theory blog in particular. There's a lot of anti-vaxxers on Substack. Yeah, Substack is a very interesting pro- a problem we did not need to have in our particular moment in time. But the point is, in the era of <laughs> yep. the in- internet, because feedback mechanisms are so quick, in that you mm-hmm. can write a blog post and people can be commenting on it within minutes, if not se- seconds, if you're making a tweet on Twitter. So mm-hmm. a tweet on Twitter sounds very re- a, ver- a very redundant phrase there. Yep. You, what you'll get is such fast feedback that there's kind of a tendency to be a lot vaguer about things. So talk about mm. they do this versus specifically because... If you're going to be critiqued immediately, you want to have kind of something in your back pocket to be able to think, of, aha, but you haven't thought about this. And I think it gets even more complicated because, I mean, I've sat through two David Icke talks of eight hours apiece. And mm-hmm. he is actually quite specific about who is responsible for these things. Yeah. He's also, at the same time, quite vague. You not only have the specific masterminds operating on Earth at this time, but the kind of motivating, almost supernatural power behind them. But he is actually mm-hmm. willing to name names and sometimes also rewrite his history to claim he was naming names before he even named those names. So Standard yeah, move. I think it is very much a problem for some conspiracy theorists. I also think sometimes it's very much a rhetorical move rather than a feature of conspiracy theorizing itself. It's a lot easier to make a vague claim to then escape having to substantiate something which you might only have a very weak belief in rather than make a bold claim and then mm-hmm. go, yeah, I don't actually know as much about the Bush family tree as I thought I did. I mean, the famous example of this are the Rockefellers who are not Rockefellers, who get brought into Rockefeller banking conspiracy theories all the time. And people point right. out, do you realize this Rockefeller is not related to those Rockefellers? They're a completely different Rockefeller <laughs> family in the same way right. that there are, there are Baldwins who are not members of the Baldwin acting family but people assume if mm-hmm. you've got the last name baldwin everybody's related yeah and that oh, that also trends into the discussion of like anti-semitism and like the way that certain individuals get coded as jewish even when they're not i agree with you that the problem of they i see the problem of they as being like a metric for how bad off because if we're all conspiracy theorists right but some of us are malignant conspiracy theorists right some of us have have become harmful or pathological in some way about it, what's the difference? And my sense of it these days is the degree of power that you ascribe to the they. So as you move in the Alex Jones direction, I think what you see is a move towards treating that they as all powerful to the point of like Alex Jones thinking it's literally the devil, you know, on a supernatural level controlling everything. Um, And so what that leads me to is a kind of heuristic similar to the kind of you know smelly things that you were pointing out which is 
the more that a conspiracy similar to the defeasibility stuff is like the more the conspiracy has to rely on an all a very very powerful they the more that we should be maybe suspicious or skeptical of that conspiracy theory what would you think about that from the particularist mindset as a kind of you know red flag heuristic at least i mean i guess this is one of those things where I largely agree with you, but as a philosopher, I can also think of exceptions. And the exception mm -hmm. is going back to Romania and the Securitate. There really sure. was an all-powerful they operating in Romanian society during the communist period. And it was a they mm -hmm. because you did not know who Securitate officers were, and you did not know who was an informant and who wasn't. You could only refer to the overpowering they and maybe link them to the dictator Ceausescu. But basically, there was a they. It was operating. It was demonstrably a real thing. It was a, an, a motivating factor of, you, of your society because your society was so controlled, you could mm -hmm. not know what was going on in, in right. the background. And that's and why this is only a heuristic, yeah. right? It can't be a yeah. defeating argument, yeah. right? It can't just be enough to just point this out. And so, once again, a lot rests upon just how conspired do you think the society in which you live in is? And I come from a home policy of Aotearoa New, Ze New Zealand, which has the benefit of being very small population-wise. So all of us have met the Prime Minister at some point in time. The Prime Minister once stole my shopping cart. Absolute political scandal. <laughs> so in that kind of situation, we have a high-trust environment because our population is so small, everybody knows everyone else so well, or everyone knows someone else who's involved in the government. So either we're all in on it, or mm -hmm. we function with high trust. And mm -hmm. then you get Romania with low-trust environments, at least dur during the communist period, arguably still a fairly low-trust environment in the modern day, given the way that their government currently operates and I have a lot of love for Romania, but its political system is very, very troubling. And then you get the really curious open questions of places like the UK and the United States of America, yeah. where yeah. particularly as a New Zealander, I wouldn't have much trust in your political system in the United States at all. No. And <laughs> I think the January 6th stuff is very good evidence of that in part because of the open secrecy stuff we've already talked about and also yeah. because american history just has a lot i about to say a very long and storied history of just a lot of conspiracies going on all the time yeah and i think it's very plausible to me a lot of folks make the argument that like the reveal of watergate really did change the landscape in, in like the american mindset that like as as absurd as we can think of it now, there were they, people did trust the government back then, right? And it like profoundly affected their trust. And I do think you see, you know, the counterculture take up the idea of conspiracies around that period in really in earnest. And like that leads into people like Cooper and Alex Jones in the 90s, which sets the stage for Trump and all this stuff now. So I really do think there is there is this real problem where in America, there has been an increased justification for belief in conspiratorial thinking, but also a substantial, I think, increase in 
dangerous, harmful, conspiratorial thinking, even if it is more prima facie justified than it was before. That's the sort of hell that we're trapped in at the moment. And like, I think, you know, in my opinion, it's somewhat asymmetrical, right? I think the political right in America is spiraling into conspiracism to a degree and in a way that the left is not, which is not to say there are no conspiracies on the left or conspiratorial thinking on the left or horseshoeing going on between parts of the left and parts of the right. But there is a profoundly right-wing conspiracism problem, it seems to me right now. Um, now we're just, we're almost, we're way over time actually, um, but we didn't get to talk about anti-Semitism at all. I'm just curious how, really quickly, how does particularism deal with like the anti-Semitism problem? This idea that like conspiracy theories so often come back to the Jews it does that allow it to be a red flag if somebody starts talking about, you know, Jews or a Jewish billionaire or something like that? Should that make us prima facie nervous about that theory? Yes. And I think there's a variety of different reasons as to why we should be nervous about this, which is in part the other issue we have with the with talk of conspiracy theories in the current day, which, of course, is. There are conspiracy theorists in the sense of people who believe conspiracy theories. And there are conspiracy theorists in the sense of people who are promoting conspiracy theories. And there's a big worry that conspiracy theory promoters, or I think as Jerome Harambam has termed them, conspiracy entrepreneurs, which I probably just mispronounced. I prefer conspiracy mongers, but I'm a classicist. Yeah, actually, so, no, actually, know. I, I actually, I also quite, I, I, I also do some stuff on rumors, and I quite like the term rumor mongering. As it's, mm -hmm. it, 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 it's a great term. So yeah, these conspiracy mongers are often insincere, and I mean, we're seeing a lot of this in unfortunately the burgeoning conspiracy communities going on back home around the COVID nineteen pandemic in that you get these telegram groups or these gab groups which are made up of people who at least initially seem to have I, i'm using legitimate here in a kind of very loose sense legitimate concerns about vaccinations i.e they've they've listened to a lot of misinformation they've taken in the wrong kind of data points they're suddenly very skeptical about covid va vaccines and the like they mm -hmm. form a community to discuss these things to work out what they should believe which is a fairly good epistemic pr practice talk with your friends but also get some experts in as well and then mm -hmm. the anti-semites come in because they go oh look we need to get people involved here so we're going to insincerely endorse their conspiracy theory and try and convert mm -hmm. these people to our cause so I think one of the reasons why we need to be so worried about anti-Semitic conspiracy theories is that the motivation for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories isn't really the idea of there being a Jewish conspiracy. It's just racism. These people mm -hmm. are racist. They want to cast Jewish people as the other. It turns out that actually... Being explicitly racist these days is kind of frowned upon, although unfortunately it does also seem to be coming back in style. Com comes so and what, goes, yeah. Yeah. What better thing to do than to go, well, look, the reason why I'm suspicious of this particular group of people isn't racism. It's because they're plotting against us. So I think mm -hmm. one of the worries about anti-Semitism in conspiracy theory crowds is that the anti-Semitism is not the result of belief in a conspiracy theory, although people enter into it via that. The actual motivating rationale is racism. 
and the racists mm. are using conspiracy theories to try and get more people to join their club. That's interesting. Yeah, and I want to. We don't have enough time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have you back on at some point to talk about anti-Semitism and especially the passage in the Buffalo Shooters Manifesto that like you know these people don't have to be Jews to be Jews, right? Jews yeah, is the, like the, not the, even a race anymore. Yeah, the Jeff <laughs> it's an Bezos, archetype. right? Argument that because he acts like a Jewish person, ipso facto he must be Jewish. In case of you, yeah, that's a. Uh... That's... Right, it's almost archetypal at this point yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so you know, we'll spend more time on that another time. Um, I don't want to run you over here. Real quick, before we get to the enlightening round, I just ask for like one or two useful resources for folks who want to dive a little deeper. Obviously, I'll link your book and article in the show notes, but other things that you found helpful as you were working through this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, the thing, when I wrote my my PhD back in the glory days before the Trump administration and COVID-19 conspiracy theories, the text, which was kind of, and I'll use this in a loose sense, my Bible of conspiracy theory, was David Co- Cody's ed- ed- edited volume, Conspiracy Theories, The Philosophical Debate, which, if you can get access to it in a library, well worth reading. It kind of sets out the initial eight or nine articles in philosophy on conspiracy theory and kind of shows mm-hmm. where the particulars pro, pro program ca- came from it's also incredibly expensive to buy which is why i'm recommending if your library has access to it or you've got access to an interlibrary loan system look at that mm-hmm. for a more modern book which actually straddles both particularism and generalism i would recommend joe usinski's book conspiracy theories and the people who believe them which is an edited collection published by oxford university press but it's a fairly affordable edited collection it actually came out of a major conference that joe ran in miami back in 2016 and it is basically an assortment of articles covering the gamut from the philosophy of conspiracy theories, the sociology of conspiracy theories, the social psychology of conspiracy theories, and then quite a lot of empirical data looking at what people do and don't believe. And it's it's kind of wonderful because it's a really nice snapshot in 2018 when it was published as to what the mm. literature looked like at that time, which because things don't change particularly rapidly in the academic world, is still a fairly good snapshot now. But if you're listening to this podcast from the heady years of 2026, after the nuclear annihilation and the cockroaches have taken control, uh, there might be more recent work to look at as well. Yes, and we'll try to get you the tablets that it's going to be written on because I assume we're going to regress here soon. Um, okay, great. Those are wonderful. Titanium. Right, we'll go back to the titanium standard. Um, okay, so uh, wonderful. I now unfortunately have to torture you. Um, so this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only choices. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to define what you mean by real. It's just real or not real. Okay. You Fair ready? Enough. I am ready. All right. Here we go. So first of all, I have to check because you're a philosopher. Is, is there anything that's real? Anything in the yes. universe? Yes, there okay, is. Okay, great. All right. So let's find out what's real. The external world, real or not real? Yes. Real. Real. Colors, real or not real? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness. 
I so I I I vacillate on this today. Today I'm going to say not real. Okay, free will. Not real. Selves or persons. Real. Genders. Real. Races. Not real. Species. Real. Morality. Some days I'm an era theorist and some days I'm not. Not real. Rights. Not real. Knowledge. Real. But there's an asterisk beside it. Uh, God or gods. Not real. Society. Sorry, I'm just thinking about Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher now, so I have to say real. I have to say real because of Mar- <laughs> because of Margaret Thatcher. I'm saying real. Okay, I, I well, we'll hold that against you afterwards. Um, money, not real. Numbers, real. Fictional characters, not real. Holes like a hole in the ground. Oh, see, as a philosopher, I know all about this debate. Today, I'm saying they're real. Okay. Chairs. Not real. Sandwiches. Not real. Science. So this is going to upset someone. I'm going to say not real. Okay. Uh, Natural laws. (sighs) Not real. Beauty. Not real. Love. Not real. Causality. Real? And finally, time. Not real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? So I was prepared going in, and I thought I, was, I, I, th- I thought it was going to be fine. And then I suddenly went, oh, people are going to be listening to these, uh, these answers <laughs> and going, oh, oh, actually, therein lies the issue. This is why philosophers should never, ever talk out loud, because the... Yep. the, the, the the little conditions I put to the real or not real and the and the asterisks, other people don't have those. They don't have them. It's so funny to me, the number of people who go into this like, I'm fine. It's going to be not a problem. And halfway through, they're like, wait a minute. Fuck. I'm fucked here. This is bad. Um, so, yeah, I'm, that, that, that is certainly a common experience. Um, and we'll, we can talk a little bit more about this in the VIP room. Um, but for... Normie folks, um, do you want to let folks know where they can find you and your work one more time? Twitter, stuff like that. So my Twitter handle is Conspiracism. I'm also now on one of the Mastodon instances, I think, Scholar Social as Conspiracism at Scholars.Social. I did have a blog slash website, mrxdentist.com, which needs to be renovated. And of course, I co-host a podcast with my good friend, Josh Edison, the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, which is a combination of reviews of philosophical papers talking about contemporary conspiracy theories and also educating each other on historical cases of either conspiracies or conspiracy theories we don't think the other person has ever heard about. Mm -hmm. It's great stuff. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about um, cross-cultural stuff if we can in the VIP as well. Um, But Em, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you reaching out and, and critiquing my work and sending me things to help me, you know, think better about these issues. So... And thank you for the correspondence. It's actually been very helpful for my thinking as well. Great. Wonderful. 
As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest yearly patron, David, and our newest Archon-level patron, Alex Benishkek. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, again, Alex Benishek, and I apologize if I'm getting that wrong, I'll work on it, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lauren Shielding, I changed this name at the beginning of winter, Dude, Fix the Vote, that bastard Neil Polzin, Chad T, and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, and while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter what they tell you, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.